You are listening to The Urban Andy Show. I'm your host, Lori Ikata. This show talks about important Native issues and highlights guests that are representing Native people in a wide variety of careers. Featured guests talk about how their Alaska Native culture impacts their work. Listen to all of the Urban Anti Show episodes on Spotify and theurbanantishow.com. Like our Facebook page and follow the Urban Anti Show on Twitter to stay up to date on future episodes. Listening to the Urban Anti Show. Today we're going to have guest Delula Ann Erickson to talk about her work at Native Movement. Um, I'll introduce myself first. Okay. Lori Kada Seuza Dehun Danaka Hefte Deludenith A Sesni Ita E Johnny Kada Buuza Ina E Misty Carlo Riley, Bauza, Setsu Uza, Madeline Riley, Setsia Uza, James Ikata Sr., Yela, Nulato Hoten Eslan, Fairbanks Lusta. My name is Laura, and my parents are John Ikata and Misty Carlo Riley. My grandparents are Madeline Riley and James Ikata Sr. Um, my family comes from Nulato, Ruby, Minto, Kaikuk, Yukon River, really. <laughs> the whole area. Yeah, that, that general area. Um, and I am currently living in Fairbanks, going to UAF. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I could do, I usually have like a shortened version I do, but I'll do my full one. Um, um Gasto Hutsunsa Denslet, Fairbanks Lesto, Kliagahaka Hada Hadiga Ann. Um, so my name is Dula Ann. My parents are Susan Erickson and Arnie Erickson. Um, my grandparents on my mother's side are the late Irene and Alex Solomon Jr. And then my grandparents on my dad's side um, is Joyce Erickson and the late John Erickson. Um, and they lived out in Toke. Um, 
they're Gusak, but they've lived in Alaska since Alaska was a territory. So they're um, a pretty established family name out in Toktu and they're pretty integrated into like the native community out there. Um, so I like to say like, even though I'm not like native from Tok, my family comes from Tok, so I have the connection out there. Um, and then my family on my mom's side comes from Caltech or Gasco um, out on the Yukon River. I live here in Fairbanks. Um, I was raised in Southeast on Tlingit Ani in the village of Huna. And then I lived out in Galena for a while. Um, and then I came up here to Fairbanks for school and I graduated from UAF also. Um, and I've been living here in Fairbanks ever since. Kuda, that's my intro. Very nice. <laughs> and so can you talk about what kind of cultural activities you took part in growing up? Um, yeah, so like I mentioned before, I was raised down in Southeast in Huna. I lived there until I was 16 and then we moved to the interior. So a lot of like my cultural upbringing was centered around Tlingit culture. And that was through like my friends I had down there. And then also through like the school programs, um, Huna had a really great Tlingit program that they integrated into their school curriculum. And so we would host like a clique every year as like a student body. Um, and it would just be like a potluck week is the Tlingit word for like a potlatch. Um, and it was like a big community gathering we would host every year. And that was always like one of my favorite times of year was getting ready for that. Um, they would have the students, if you weren't Tlingit like myself, we got to pick a moiety to be under, which is like they have the eagle and the raven crests. Um, and so, and the way that their culture works is that like a lot of other indigenous cultures it's really focused on balance and so one year the eagles would host and we would serve the ravens and the next year the ravens would host and they would serve the eagles um and so i didn't grow up knowing my own culture but i got to grow up very immersed in Tlingit culture and so i'm always like that's why that's part of my introduction because i feel like they gave me my indigenous like groundwork. And then when I moved to the interior, I really got to like dig deeper into like my Diné culture. Um, so yeah, so it was a lot of like cultural practices through school participation. I used to dance with um, the Huna uh, dancers. And so like, that was like one of my favorite after school <laughs> activities was going to their dance practice. Um, and then like later on when I was older and I was up here in Fairbanks in my college years, that's when I really connected with my Diné culture. Um, I used to dance with the Trafietta dancers up at UAF and that's where I learned a lot of Diné songs. Um, I've been connecting a lot with my family back in Caltech and learning more of our downriver songs. Um, and then I also do a lot of bead work um, and that's been a real strong avenue for reconnection to my Diné culture is through my beadwork and having like my aunties mentor me, um, Kathleen, uh, Hildebrand, Meckel is like one of my big mentors. Um, she's taught me a lot of like my skills that I know. She taught me how to process a caribou hide. She taught me how to tough and she taught me how to quill work. Um, and so yeah, those are like the 
main cultural activities that I do. I also, <laughs> I keep like saying I'm done and then I keep remembering other stuff, sorry. Um, I've been working on learning Danaka for like the last several years. And that's like a practice I've picked up and put down a lot. And so it feels like I've been working on it for a long time, but at the same time, I also feel like I haven't made a lot of progress. Um, and that's something I'm working on intentionally weaving into my day-to-day -day life also. Um, did you used to work with the Doyon Languages? Yeah, so I worked with the Doyon Languages online project for two years um, as the project manager. And I actually wasn't able to work with Danaka, but I got to work with um, De the Deknag language, the Upper Kuskokwim language, which is also called Danaka. Um, but it's like their spelling's a little bit different and there's like a little yeah, there's like subtle differences between Upper Kuskokwim and Danaka um, or Koyakon. And so I worked with Deknog, Upper Kuskokwim, Tanacross, and Upper Tanana language speakers through that grant. Okay. Yeah. And it was, it's real interesting when you like kind of have a little bit of an understanding of a Dene language and then you hear other ones, you can like see how the languages are related. And so that was really fun to work with the different language groups. Yeah. And connecting with elders outside of my region was like, that was really fun too. Okay, so you got to connect with um, people during that project? Yeah, so we the way we organized that project was we had content creator teams um, that worked with, the fluent speakers of the language to develop out the different lessons and so and each team in the language areas had like different capacities so like some teams we had like upwards of like 10 people on a team and then some other teams there is only like one person and an elder and so it was really varied um so each team's experience was a little bit different um but it was fun to kind of like see those dynamics and then engage with like communities they might not engage with normally um, and to build relationships across the interior. Yeah, because I use um, Doyan languages online when I want to try to get back into language learning and then, you know, like step away and then get back to it. It just, we really have to dedicate time to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been struggling with that my cousin's real great though she'll like text me Danaka words to like test me mm -hmm. <laughs> the week and having like a partner help me with that is nice to have that yeah account. yeah that's really important so how do you feel like you benefited from attending those cultural potlucks and just participating in cultural activities in Huna um growing up it was like it really like set the stage for me to like understand indigenous like knowledge and indigenous ways of viewing the world and interacting um I really learned like protocols growing up there and so like having that background it was easier to kind of like integrate into like Diné protocols and like learning how we operate um, up here and like learning our indigenous worldviews up here and our indigenous knowledge 
um, yeah, it really like set the stage for me. I think if I grew up anywhere else, like if I had grown up in like a different city or anywhere else outside of Alaska, I wouldn't have had that like groundwork to like really connect. So I feel like it, it like springboarded me into like my reconnection with my own Diné culture. Um, and then Southeast is just, it's such a beautiful place and the culture is so rich and the people are so warm and welcoming. Um, so like, even though I'm not Thinket and I have like no strong connection to the Thinket culture, when I go to Southeast, it feels like home. Just like when I'm in the interior, it feels like home. And so I think it's really like solidified my connection to the like lands here in Alaska and waters. Yeah, um, it's very beautiful in the Southeast. And I love listening to uh, Clinket songs. They're just so, they're such strong voices and the drum, it's just so nice to listen to. Mm-hmm. And they really like the power of their ancestors yeah. when they sing. Yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, and so it's just that was just something like so special to me to be able to be raised there and to be like so welcomed into the Thinket culture as like a little native girl wanting to be native so badly. <laughs> hmm. Oh yeah, I get that. And you went to UAF. What did you major in? Um, yeah, so I actually got a dual degree up at UAF. So I have a bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering, and then I have a bachelor's of arts in rural development with like a concentration. I don't remember what my concentration for rural development was because they changed them recently and they're shorter. But when I was like the catalog I was signed up under, it was like a seven word concentration, like community economic project planning or something I can't remember um but my degree my bachelor's of arts is rural development okay and what made you want to go into uh both of these degrees um so I started with my engineering degree and that was really um I guess like inspired by my time, I attended um, Rahai, the Rural Alaska Honors Institute. And then following Rahai, I was a part of the Alaska Native Science and Education Program, ANSEP, um, their summer bridge program. Um, and so at Rahai, I took a couple, I took the engineering elective that they offered. And then that like pushed me into ANSEP and doing like, my summer internship in an engineering firm with ANSEP. Um, and so, and like, I've always been like attracted to like the hard sciences and STEM and stuff like that. And so that's what like inspired me to go into mechanical engineering. Um, and then like, as I was moving through my degree program, I think it was like my first or second year at school, I had took in, I think a rural development elective class and that like really inspired me to want to work on renewable energy and sustainable housing in rural Alaska and so that's like where I was like okay with my degrees combined like my powers combined I could do this if I do a rural development degree I'll have like 
that planning lens. And then if I do my mechanical engineering degree, I'll have like that technical lens and then I can like combine them and really like hone in on that like dream to work on renewable energy projects and sustainable housing. Um, that path has since changed, but that was like my initial, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, my thoughts behind those degrees. And then I'm also like the, I'm, I don't know if you like do astrology, I'm super into astrology, but I'm a Capricorn sun sign, which is like um, very high success driven. So if I start a project, I feel this need to finish it. And so because mm. I started an engineering degree, I was like, I have to finish my engineering degree. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, what kind of clubs or things did you participate in while at UAF? Um, gosh, it feels like so long ago. Um, I was a part of ANSEP. So the ANSEP has a branch up at UAF. And then I was also a part of ACES, which is the um, American Indian Science an engineering society. I think that's what the acronym stands for. Um, I was also a part of the local Society of Women Engineers, SWE. Um, and I feel like there's a couple others. I participated a little bit in, um, I think it was Natives for Positive Change, but I think their name has since changed also up at UAF. And that was like, a student group of like indigenous students who were wanting to like get into social justice work um, and advocacy. And then I was also uh, an officer in um, the Trafietta dance group up at UAF. Um, and then I would also go to the, um, I wasn't like, I never held a position in this dance group, but they were just like a real loving and warm crew, the Inuyupiaq uh, dancers. Um, and so I took a couple of the Alaska Native dance classes and the instructor was like, if you like this class, you should come join our dance group. Like we welcome everyone. And so because of that, I started joining um, their dance groups. And it was just like, like my first couple of years of school, I didn't really connect with anyone and it was like kind of lonely. And having those like clubs, particularly at rural student services, like the Trafietta and the Inuyupiaq dance group and um, like Natives for Positive Change and ACES. Um, it really helped me find like a community at UAF. And so like in my mind, I didn't join a lot, but I guess just like saying it now, I was in a lot of clubs. Um, and that like, like I said, it didn't happen until like, I think my third year of school. Um, but yeah, I just have a lot of appreciation for RSS and the space they create for Native students up there. Yeah, um, I just came from there because we had Beating Club. And it's just such a welcoming place. And um, yeah, they're just I actually, so helpful. I was a part of the Beating Club too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, you mentioned one challenge you had. Um, what can you tell me about any challenges and any other challenges you faced while you were going to school and how you overcame them? Yeah. Um, so I had my daughter in the middle of like my school 
Um, I think I had her during my second year of school. Um, so that was like a big hurdle was juggling. I was, I stayed a full-time student um, even when she was a newborn. And so juggling a full class load with a baby was a lot. Um, my cousins and my parents and my sister like really stepped up and helped out with that. Um, and so like, and my friends too, like at school, like there were some times where I would like <laughs> run into the RSS gathering room and I'd be like, hey, can Kyla chill with you for a little bit? And then I'd like run and meet my professor, like run and turn in an assignment or something. Um, and so having that community at school really helped me be a parent and also like be a successful student. Um, and then I'm trying to think what else? I think like finding that community at school was like the also like the first couple of years of school were real lonely and not having like any connections was really hard. Um, but like I said, like RSS was like that space they created for students to meet each other and connect and gather was like really what got me through. Um, and so, yeah, I always just like sing the praises for rural student services and also for the dancer department um, because I think they create such a valuable space for students. Um, and then I was also a part of the BLAST scholarship program. Um, I can't remember what BLAST stands for. Um, uh, biomedical Learning and, oh, I have a sticker. Student biomedical training. Learning and Student Training, yes. Yeah, so I was part of the BLAST program, I think in my last year of school. And being in that cohort was also really helpful because it made me like really understand and see the value in indigenous research and that like our indigenous, like it was just really affirming for me that I could be in like this very Western academic university system and then have mentors there that are like your indigenous research is valid and it's needed and it's appreciated um and so just like getting that like validation was really nice too and then I struggled a lot with uh imposter syndrome I and I'm learning that that's a very common thing for indigenous students in university systems to have that imposter syndrome um and I didn't know what it was for a long time until like my last year of school when me and my friend like found this Twitter thread about it <laughs> and learned about it through a Twitter thread. Um, and we we're like, oh my God, this is what we've been feeling. And so just like having, again, like community to like share those experiences with and like work through that imposter syndrome and kind of like deconstruct it together. Um, so yeah, I guess like the big highlight from all of what I just shared is like your community in school is real important and that's like what will get you through. Yeah, community is so important and there's so many places to find community on campus. There's clubs and organizations and yeah, you go to a dance group and just connecting with people is so important. Mm -hmm. And it's hard during these pandemic times. Yeah, it really is. That's something we've been struggling with in like my work now. Um, 
is how to continue to foster that community connection when most of our organizing has to be virtual. And like, yeah. Zoom is great, but it's real easy to feel isolated in Zoom land too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just not the same. But do you have any advice for mothers who might be in school right now? Um, I think like the thing that helped me the most because at first I wasn't very transparent with like my workload um, and like all the things I was juggling. But when it became like overwhelming, I was like kind of forced to be like, it's like the Capricorn in me again, where it's like, I don't want to be seen as weak. And for some reason in my brain, like admitting that I needed extra help or that I like couldn't do stuff because I was juggling motherhood. Um, so just being really transparent with my professors and they were, a lot of them were really understanding. Most of them were really understanding. Um, and they would help me like if I had babysitter issues, they would help me like find alternative exam times um, or if I needed to like an adjusted deadline because I was like taking care of my kid. They were really flexible about it. Um, and so just like building that relationship with my professors and being really transparent about it helped me keep my grades up <laughs> and not miss exams. There was like a couple times where like, I actually let me bring like my daughter, she was, I think three at the time. I had a couple exams and I, my sitter was sick. And so I didn't have anyone to watch her. Um, and I couldn't get a hold of anyone else. And so she came and sat in the classroom at my exam with me. And like the professor was like, here's some coloring stuff for her. <laughs> and like, they're really, yeah, they're really helpful. Okay. Yeah. Just communication is so important. Yeah. Not to be scared to communicate. Cause like I was, I was definitely scared to like communicate my needs or I felt like I was being too much of a burden mm -hmm. trusting that like your professors really do want you to succeed and they want, they want to see the best out of you and they'll accommodate you as best they can. Yeah. And where else did you work after you graduated from UAF? Um, so I worked over at Doyan Foundation in their language program. Um, and then I've only worked at two places. So I only graduated like four years ago. Um, and so my work experience is not that extensive, but I moved from Doyan Foundation over to uh, Native Movement, which is a local nonprofit organization. Um, we're based here in Fairbanks, but we have an office down in Anchorage and our staff is like statewide and we focus on statewide organizing. Can you tell me how Native Movement was created? I just had um, Yvonne Peters on the show last week and he kind of talked about it a little bit. Yeah, so yeah, Yvonne and um, his partner, Ine Begay, um, they, they were like the founding members and uh, Princess Johnson also was a part of Native Movement when it first started. Um, and I can give you like a little bit, um, really Yvonne, whatever Yvonne has to say about it. Like he was there, he knows I'm, I didn't come in until I think like 10 years, 15 years maybe after Native Movement was first started. Um, 
So yeah, like Native Movement was originally started to kind of help uplift the voices of Indigenous people in the interior and to really put hunting and fishing rights in like a center stage um, around development projects. Um, and it's grown to be a lot more than that. Our capacity has expanded what seems like tenfold um, even since before I was just, I used to like volunteer for Native Movement a lot before I worked there. Um, and so I remember when it was like five organizers just really slaying the game. And now I think our staff is upwards of 20 people right now, um, which is just crazy. And we focus on um, really focusing on like people power and uplifting um, the voices of indigenous people, but also like advocating for sustainable and just futures for all, not just indigenous people. Um, and yeah, like really driving home that message that like an indigenous led world is not just for indigenous people, it's for all people. Um, and we're trying to build communities that support thriving lives for all. And that's like, that's all people, all animals, all spirits, like the land, the water, all of us thriving together. And what do you do at Native Movement? Um, so when I started over at Native Movement, I worked at the, as the comms director with our comms team. Um, and that was really just like curating our messages um, and uplifting the work that all our organizers do. Um, since then, I've transitioned over to the environmental justice team. And so I work as the environmental justice director um, and our team is um, very broad. We focus on a lot of different things um, from watchdogging, uh, like watchdogging, extractive, industry projects. Um, one of our big campaign lifts in the last couple of years was the Arctic Refuge and um, preventing those that development out in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, and we also do a lot of watchdogging around ADA, the Alaska Industrial Export Authority. Um, Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority Sorry, I messed up that acronym. Um, we do a lot of like watchdogging around their activity. They're invested in a lot of um, not so great development projects in Alaska that really threatens um, the livelihood of a lot of indigenous communities across the state and threatens the health of our land and our waters. Um, and then we also are working on building out a land back campaign, which would be focused on land back in action in Alaska, um, particularly how businesses can engage in land back. And then in the future, um, how like land owning people in Alaska can participate in land back. Um, and I'm trying to like, think off the cuff right here. Sorry if I'm like a lot of ums. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's fine. We also are just starting um, a project that's centered around 
um, indigenous spirituality and how spirituality really informs and moves people to civic action or like activism um, and like where those connections come from. Um, what else do we do? We did a lot of work with the roadless rule um, down in Southeast in the Tongass. Like I said, we're statewide. So we're like, our team is all over the place doing all the work. Um, and we have so many great community partners that help get all this work done too. Um, yeah, I can't think of like anything else. Like our EJ team is just, we're killing it. They're doing great. Um, we have a team of four people right now um, and they're just working on like all the different areas across the state. So we have our Northern organizer who really focuses in, um, like I mentioned to you before, Nari Toller, she does our Arctic work. Um, we have Lindsay Mallard here in Fairbanks who does a lot of the land back um, narrative building. And then we have Tukni Holstrom who uh, is focusing in on community engagement. And then she's working on the spirituality grant um, and how that connects to civil engagement. And then Noea Tegabon down in Southeast works a lot on um, advocacy for the Tongass. And yeah, I think that's it. And the native movement in general, like we have, that's just our EJ program. We also have a climate justice program, um, a gender justice program and a trainings program. Cool. And when you say watchdogging, what does that mean? It means like keeping an eye on projects that are getting pushed through and their um, like their status. So a lot of the times projects that are proposed, they have to go through an approval process. And so keeping an eye on that process and letting people know when it's time to engage and getting that like people power going. Um, like when the lease sales were going up in Anwar, um, mobilizing the community to comment, submit comments to that and voice their opposition to it and really make our voices be heard um, and uplifting the indigenous people of the area and making sure their voices were heard above everything else. Um, and then similar with like Ada, they have a lot of like extractive industry projects in the works right now. The Ambler Road is one of them That's there's commenting periods open for that right now. Um, and so that's like, that's what we mean with our watchdogging is like keeping track of those processes and letting people know when it's time to engage and then helping people um, feel confident in engaging in those spaces. Cause sometimes it can be really intimidating to call into a board meeting and to give a public testimony um, it's a little bit scary. And so like, that's some of our trainings too um, that's related to our work is like helping community members feel empowered to share their voices and to help stop those projects. Yeah, and that's really important work. Yeah, and, and like similar to with like engaging in like um, more federal, systems like the mm -hmm. road school um, was created in 2001 and it was like a rule that was I think signed into 
legislation or I'm like I'm a little fuzzy on the details there <laughs> um but like helping people engage with our government and our leaders in the government to implement protections for our lands and waters. And so the roadless rule was like a protection that was implemented in the Tongass to prevent new roads from being built. Um, and during the Trump administration, that was one of the acts that got overturned. And so they took the roadless rule out of the Tongass, which meant it was like open for business a little bit. Um, and then with our new administration, there was some common periods that were open to reinstate the roadless rule and to have um, our representatives like push for that reinstatement. And so we did a lot of um, community engagement around that and getting people to comment, um, to submit comments to the representatives to support the reinstatement of the roadless rule. And, and like I mentioned before too, a lot of our work is done through partnerships with other organizations. And so a lot of our Tongass work was done in partnership with Sitka Conservation Society, as well as with um, Marina Anderson, who's um, a super amazing uh, land rights activist in Southeast. Yeah, and when you talk about the different administrations and the going back and forth, this just speaks volumes to how important it is to vote. Mm -hmm. Yes, voting is so important. Yeah, and so yeah, that's like one of the other things we work on too is helping with get out the native vote. Um, native movement is a 501c3, which means we're not like allowed to be very political. We could just be like, please vote. Um, but we work with some of our partners who have uh, 501c4 funding, or they have a they're 501c4, which means they're allowed to like really engage in the voting process and really guide people towards um, to endorse candidates that are aligned with our values. Um, and so that's actually what we're preparing to do right now, um, as we have our like. Alaska state legislation, legislative session starting here soon. Um, we're really looking through the policies and the, the um, bills that are up for proposal and which ones we're wanting to push forward. And then as we're getting ready to go into like voting season, um, really seeing who our candidates are and trying to figure out who we can get into office and who's gonna be our best ally in those spaces. So yeah, it's very important to vote, especially um, not just like on the federal level, but really at like your local level, mm -hmm. voting for your local representatives. Um, I think those elections are always really understated, but they're sometimes the most impactful. Um, yeah. On the local level. I think our last municipal election we had here in Fairbanks, I think we have like... 90,000 some people here in our borough and only I think we only had like a 10,000 voter turnout which is real low for a wow um so yeah please vote vote in all the elections <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you mentioned the land back movement mm -hmm. so what does that mean so uh, 
that's like a conversation we're just starting to have at Native Movement and our land back um, work is really, really new. And so we're still like getting community input on that. So our work is really guided by our advisory board, which is like, um, I think it's a 20 something board of people from across the state. Um, and so we're still having like conversations with our advisory board about like, what is land back? How do we wanna see that in Alaska? We did a really great panel with some community leaders back in December during the People's AFN, um, which is a side event that we host during the Alaska Federation or AFN, Alaska Federation of Natives. Um, during their convention, we host a side one that's really focused on not so much the politics of AFN, but like the people and what we need to see um, in our communities. And so we had a land back panel and we really discussed like land back is really indigenous stewardship, having authority and autonomy um, to decide how our lands are being used and how we're engaging with our land and the water and the animals um, and how we do that in a good way that creates regenerative systems versus extractive systems where it's like, take all you can get and then move on um, and really moving the focus from uh, economic gain to like long-term prosperity of our land. Um, and so I say that all to say, like for me personally, when I see land back, it's indigenous stewardship, um, indigenous autonomy of our lands. Yeah, when I think of uh, land back, I just think of like fish management the most because mm -hmm. it's like really impacting um, the Yukon River right now. Mm -hmm. Yukon River uh, communities weren't able to fish this last season. So a lot of people had to miss out on that. Yeah, and that's that's like ties into our climate work too. Um, because like there was a lot that went into that empty season that we just had where nobody was able to fish. And it was like, it was a combination of heat stress wiping out the um, pulses of our salmon. And so our salmon stock has gone real, gotten real low because the river is hot and the fish are dying in it. And then they're also being overfished out on the ocean. And so our returns up our river are smaller and smaller. And so, and that's also like land back too, right? Like having stewardship over our lands also means having the final say on how our resources are managed, how our animals are managed um, and making sure that the people who depend on that the most are at the front of the line versus at the back of the line, right? Where like they didn't allow any subsistence fishing but our commercial fishers we're out there getting it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also fish on the Yukon. And so like last summer was such a sad fishing season. It was so, yeah. it was so weird not seeing like smokehouses full and not seeing like my cousins posting their fishing pictures. Like it was mm -hmm. hard. Yeah, it was a very hard time. And um, 
What are there any events coming up at Native Movement? Um, I can't think of any off the top of our head. Um, all of our events get posted um, on our Facebook account, Native Movement. Um, and we also share out on our Instagram, which is I think native underscore M-N-T-V or M-V-P-M movement. Um, and then you could also sign up for our newsletter um, on our website, nativemovement.org. Um, and we share out any events we have on there. But I can't think of any off the top of my head. And are you guys working virtually? Yeah, so almost all of our events right now are virtual um, or like during some of like the lulls in COVID, we've had a couple hybrid events. Um, we are part of the Alaska Just Transition Collective, um, which is a group of multiple organizations and community members across the state who really share a vision for a just transition um, and we are starting the planning for our 2022 just transition summit which will likely take place around end of may um, and like i said you could just follow our socials and any of our events will get out shared out on there so more will come of that soon Ooh. and i don't so think we've decided if that's going to be a virtual or an in-person or a hybrid event yet. Yeah, so just keep track to the, keep track of the Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you give people who want to join this kind of work? I would say just like jump in head first don't be scared, um, connect with like local organizations who are doing this work. Um, yeah, we have a real big community that we work with and, and we're real welcoming. We love people. Um, we love welcoming people to our movement. Um, yeah, and we actually, we are doing um, community conversations each month. And so every month we'll have a space um, that's open for the community to engage in our work and each one will be focused on different environmental justice projects that are going on or campaigns that are going on um, in the state. I don't think we've announced the date for our February one yet, um, but again, keep an eye on the Facebook page. It'll be up there soon. We just talked with Delu and Erickson. We talked about her childhood, her education. We talked about the challenges she faced in her education. We talked about the community that helped her get through those challenges. And we talked about her work at Native Movement. You can like the Native Movement Facebook page and you can follow the Native Movement Instagram and their handle is native underscore MVMT. Thank you for listening.